When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All the things I'd heard about trumpet playing from all these great teachers led me not to be able to play the trumpet at all. Whereas when I started researching other things, I found I could get around and make things happen. So this the process of, of learning how to play again with no strength in my lip was a kind of a clarifying process for me in weeding through all the information and all the advice I had gotten from these years of trumpet lessons and seeing what was not helping me and what was. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Brad Good. Brad, well, he's old school. While many of his contemporaries were learning about jazz in the halls of academia, Brad was getting his education the traditional way, jamming and hanging with the masters of their craft. But Brad's unique sound was almost silenced by severe chop problems, leading him to develop a deeper understanding of the mechanical workings of the embouchure. And that knowledge has not only given him back his voice, but has taken his playing to new heights. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, and welcome to a new episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined by Mr. Brad Good. Brad, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well, thank you very much, and and, uh, very happy to be invited to join you in your podcast uh man this is so much fun and and this is uh, uh, today's hang is definitely one of those ones where you know i'm getting to to, to know you uh you know sometimes I, I talk to old friends and and today is a, a time to hopefully make a new friend and uh you know through the the fraternity of trumpet players you know the the crazy lot that we are so we have this common ground um and you know I think that's it's really important that as a community that we we share our mutual not only our mutual love for the instrument but our mutual experiences and the absolutely way. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you you've got a, a very interesting uh, situation where you are not only a phenomenal trumpet player but you're also a uh, you're a very versatile musician. So you have other tools in your arsenal besides that piece of brass tubing that we all love. So. Um, what else, what else do you play and teach? Um, well, I mean, I'm a, I'm a jazz studies professor, which, which means that I'm working with all students on, on every instrument and voice, um, to help them with their musicianship. And, and so, um, in my position here at the University of Colorado, I'm the jazz improvisation teacher and I teach jazz history um, with the graduate students, the, the master students and the doctoral students, um, I teach jazz pedagogy, 
which is, is something I'm very passionate about, ta talking about how we teach jazz to people. And, and that, that's a very uh, strong love of mine is, is teaching and, and sharing with people who, who are uh, in the process of wanting to become college jazz teachers is something I, I really love doing. And then I'm also the jazz trumpet professor at, at the university. So we have, we have two trumpet professors. We have um, a quote unquote classical trumpet professor and that's Dr. Ryan Gardner, who, who's a wonderful teacher and, and, and performer. And, and he's got about 25 students in his studio and, and I have 12 um, people who are, are um, jazz majors, but, but their main instrument is trumpet. So, it, you know, it's trumpet lessons, improv, jazz history, jazz pedagogy. And um, as far as, as being a multi-instrumentalist, um, uh, the, the instruments I, I play professionally, are, are, aside from the trumpet, are, are the bass and the drums. But I, I'm a dabbler on, on a lot of the other instruments. And, and of course, uh, use the piano all day, every day, both in my own practicing and teaching but but I also I also love to play the piano but I, I wouldn't call myself a pianist uh, for certain yeah 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 well it, you know it in the educational process you know especially for people who want to be educators uh, you know going through your your methods classes and learning how to play all of the the basic instruments that's always been part of the the structure and you know, definitely piano skills. Uh, I wish my piano playing was much better because, you know, it definitely helps with your ability to to compose and arrange and understanding harmonic structure. But mm -hmm. I've always found that 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 players, uh, particularly uh, uh, a player like of a, of a horn like us, you know, or a vocalist or things like that, that also have abilities in uh, like really good abilities in rhythm instruments have a really unique approach. and. Um, I think that, you know, like, as I was going through your, your resume, uh, the idea of, of uh, I really love the idea of, of having a really work, solid working, like professional level working ability on drums and on bass gives you kind of a, a really unique perspective on the way the trumpet sits in with the foundation of the rhythm section. Yeah. So I've seen the band from both sides now. As the song says, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> from the front, from the front and the back, um, you you know, and and so yeah, um, I, I think you know, you said it. Rhythm is is the foundation uh, of all the music that that comes uh, from African American influence, and 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 certainly from from the West African influence, and and. Um, something that I've been very involved with over the last uh, 15 years or so is, is playing with a lot of West African musicians and, and, and playing that music and, and really reinforces what I thought I knew and, and, and what I thought I loved about jazz and the jazz tradition, which is that rhythm is at the heart of everything and, and the, the ability to, to speak in rhythm and, and and deal deal in, in rhythmic language is really a strengthening factor for any modern musician. And, and also that that music is an oral tradition because of course in, in West African culture, 
there is no written tradition of music. So everything is ear training. Every, everything is memory and ear. And, and so having that awareness, I, I think certainly makes a difference in the way I approach the trumpet. Also as a bassist, and my, my early jazz experiences, my early professional experiences involved older musicians being really excited that a kid wanted to play the upright bass because this was the 1970s and, and everybody was telling us the upright bass was dead. And, and there weren't that many young people um, interested in, in pl playing that instrument and playing straight ahead jazz at that time. And so just the fact that this kid was hanging around wanting to play you know, it was almost like this. Oh, kid, you got a bass. You're you're in. You know, <laughs> so so uh, you know, having to be the bass player, um, one cannot BS. You know, so a, a baseball player, uh, you go to the the plate um, three times out of ten, you get a hit, and and seven times out of ten, you strike out. You're an all star. Um, a bass player you miss one note and the whole band spins around and stares at you as if to say, why did you miss that note? <laughs> why, why did you play the wrong chord? You know, so you're, you're in a position where you have to be responsible for the harmony all the time or you're in trouble. So, so that's never not been a part of my thinking as a trumpet player. Whereas many horn players can can go for a while before they run into the the problem of having to really deal with the harmony, and can we can get by on our good looks and our and our cool sounds, um, but as a bass player, you you're, the music doesn't allow that. Um, so I, I never considered, you know, from the time I started trying to be a jazz trumpet player that. I wouldn't be responsible for my harmonic decisions at every moment, you know, so that, that certainly these other instruments in, inform the way I deal with the trumpet mm -hmm. big time. Yeah. So was trumpet your first instrument or, or? I started as a, as a little kid violinist. Um, when I was uh, very young, I was three years old, four years old. Um, my parents would play the stereo and, and my parents didn't listen to jazz or classical music. They just listened to pop music. But if they would turn the stereo on, I would stand in front of the speaker entranced. And if they turned the stereo off, I would scream. So, so somebody said to them, um, get this kid music lessons, but they didn't know what to do. So my father taught at a school across the street from our apartment in Chicago, and he heard there was a man coming once a week to give violin lessons. So they got me a little half-size violin when I was four years old. I went to the, the basement of this old school, to the boiler room, uh, and studied violin with Antonio Menegini, who didn't really speak English. And all I really remember is, is I wanted to wrap my thumb around the neck of the violin and you're supposed to keep your thumb up. So he was constantly whacking my thumb with his bow and screaming at me to keep my thumb up. 
So this this was like you know like out of a Charles Dickens novel, right? Music lessons. Um, I didn't take to the violin. I didn't play with other children in groups. I I was just being subjected to some cruel form of torture, and, and um, I quit after a few years. But I picked up the guitar and taught myself to play rock and roll guitar by by listening to the radio and and imitating and and kind of starting to transcribe and steal things in my own way and and um by the time i was um 12 13 years old i was playing in the garage bands in in my neighborhood and and then i joined the school band and and picked the uh the cornet and uh, just for no apparent reason yeah, so so the kind of yeah i kind of strings were home strings were the original instrument so i've always i've always picked up a string instrument and kind of went mm, yeah i can do this yeah. felt i did it when i was a child the brass instruments became more of a journey and more of a mystery as you was looking at say well what how do you make a sound on this thing you know and so there's there's the the trumpet lifestyle beginnings. yeah yeah so so how did you make that transition from being uh you know the the rock and roll guitarist uh to becoming a, a jazz head yeah what, what what was your gateway into the to the uh, yeah. this is this is an unusual story too I, I i used to take the bus to my i was taking trumpet lessons and i was you know studying trying to learn to play the first movement of the Haydn concerto and, and trying to play my Clark studies and had a very good teacher. Um, the bus stop where I, where I would catch the bus home was outside a used record store. And, and one day um, they had damaged LPs outside the store in a box. Apparently there were two damaged to sell and the, the box said free, take one. And I found one that had a trumpet on it and took it. And it was a, a record called Don Cherry, Where is Brooklyn? It was uh, Don, Don Cherry, Pharaoh Sanders, um, Henry Grimes, and Ed Blackwell, and basically playing like primal scream bebop. And and I, I took it home and I and I put this record on. And I, I remember lying on my bed just mind blown, like you mean that's allowed you can do that with a musical instrument and and that was really the day that my life changed um then i started going to that record store on purpose looking for more records and and, and one thing led me to another um and uh i was um one day I had a, a bedroom. We had a ranch style house and my my bedroom uh, had a window that, that went up right onto the front porch. And I had a Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker record on and I had it cranked up and I was just didn't know what I was doing, but I was going for it, playing my trumpet along with this record, trying to do something. And, and um as somebody knocking very loudly on my window. And, and I thought it was one of the neighbors complaining about the trumpet playing. So I, I opened the shades and it was my father's friend, Mr. Bierman, 
from down the block. And he's saying, open the window, open the window. I open the window. And he says, Bradley, you like Dizzy Gillespie? I said, yeah, why? He says, come outside, come outside. So I go outside, I follow him, go down the block to his house. He takes me in the basement. And he opens up these photo albums and, and he starts showing me pictures. He says, you see this, this is a picture of, of Kenny Burrell's first record date. And this is a, he's showing me all these black and white photos. And I'm thinking like, what am I looking at? What, where's this guy coming from? Well, it turns out he had been the manager of DG records when Dizzy Gillespie owned his own record label wow. in, in Detroit for a short time. And he says, Dizzy's coming to town next month and we'll go hang out with him. Man. And sure enough, that, that is what happened. And, and so after that, after that experience of, of hanging with Dizzy before his concert, going to the concert after the concert and, and having him encourage me and, and um, that was pretty much the end of it. I was just like, you know, I am going to be a jazz trumpet player. That, that's, I had nobody else around me who knew anything about jazz, no parents, teachers, friends. I was just on my own. And then luckily, Mr. Bierman heard me practicing. And, and that, that's, that's really what happened. Wow. That, that's a great story. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. You know, and that's that's what's so interesting, you know, when, when you just think about uh, the circumstances of life, you just never know uh, what opportunity are going to, you know, opportunities are going to present themselves to you. you know, they say, you know, the opportunity knocks at your door, but in this case, opportunity knocked at your window. So really quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. And that, um, you know, sometimes it, they say that, that, you know, like luck, the, the concept of luck is luck is when uh, opportunity meets uh, preparation, preparation meets opportunity. Yeah. Uh, and that it, it sounds like, you know, all of the little pieces to your life, you know, that, that have come together. Uh, yeah, there certainly is that level of, of uh, serendipity that, that went on with it. But there's also that, that burning desire and that, that work, you know, the, the shedding that you did, you know, because if you had just been listening to Dizzy, it'd have been one thing, but it was the fact that you were, you were shedding and you were putting yourself out there and, and, uh, and doing, doing the grind that you needed to, that that's what, what made it all come together. So like yeah. when you're teaching, um, because, you know, the, the situation has changed so much in terms of uh, accessibility to music and, and, uh, and artists. Um, what are some of the, the, the traits that you try to instill in your students uh, that to, to give them to the best place possible uh, to be prepared to, to enter the world of, of jazz and jazz education? Well, that, that's a difficult question. That's um, a good question. Uh, you know, I kind of I kind of see my job as um, having having two important components. One is to share with them the basic musicianship and and instrumental skills they're going to need to to be a successful musician. You know, so you see your nuts and bolts. You know, 
sight reading, understanding rhythm and harmony, being able to have technique on your instrument, being able to understand these things, knowing how to develop repertoire, memorize songs. Um, you know, these are the basic things that are going to serve them hopefully well, whether they go into performing in and in any area of, of music um, or they go into teaching, they're going to need to be good musicians themselves, you know, if they're going to be teachers. So, so the, the, that part is kind of like trade school. You know, you need to be able to single tongue, double tongue, triple tongue, doodle tongue, play high, play low, <laughs> sight read, sight transpose. You know, these are, these are the things I think these, these students should have. And then the balance is who are they as individuals? What are they interested in? What do they want to do? What are they aspiring to do? And, and so in that way, to teach individ, each individual person differently according to who they are, what their learning style is, what their aptitudes are, and what their goals are. Um, the, the, certainly the, the last thing I want any of my students to do is play like me or think like me. I think trying not to be that person is important. I mean, obviously, once in a while, I'm going to have a student who who's drawn to, 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 to trying to do some of the things I do or, or play some of the things I play. And, and that, that's fine. That, that's just influence. But, but you know, allowing them to become themselves and trying to help facilitate that without getting in their way of doing that is, is the other part of the job. So it's this balance between giving them what they want or helping them to find out what they want and, and giving them what I think they're going to need. I think that that's the tricky part. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it seems like, you know, I guess with, with every style of music there, uh, it's necessary to have uh, your own personality, your own expression, your own voice. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think for, as a jazz musician, uh, to be playing the art form of jazz, that isn't, uh, there is no option. You need, those are the things you have to be able to do because jazz is uh, supposed to be this uh, unique uh, expression of, of where you are and who you are at this moment. That's, you know, the, the, the art of improvisation is, you know, taking what you got and making something new out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if, if all you're doing is learning how to regurgitate licks, then you're not really being a true jazz musician. You're, you know, you're, you're, you're mimicking. So, um, you know, I, I like the fact that you, that you, uh, have, have already touched on the fact that, that, you know, the, it is a unique and individual learning process for each student, uh, helping them to, to discover their, their unique voice. So, um, you know, when you're looking at that balance between the wants and the needs, um, how uh, how did you go through that process for yourself? You know, how how did how were you able to to determine? Uh, you know, these these are the skills that I need, and then these are the desired outcomes that I want. And how how did you 
personally be uh, learn how to balance those things out? Well, um, in some ways, it might have been easier for me um, than it is for some of my students uh, be, because I didn't study jazz formally. So I, I never had anybody telling me what I needed to know or or how to do it or how to you know how how to study it or how to learn it i i was just kind of left on my own to figure things out and um at the same time i had this very excellent very well structured education in classical music so i, I have an undergraduate degree in classical trumpet and i have a master's degree in classical bass so um I was getting, and I had fantastic teachers, the best, who who helped me learn how to learn, and learn how to practice, and and, and learn how how to solve problems, and and grow. And um, they were also great models on how to teach a lesson. So, so um, if I applied these learning techniques to the things I wanted to understand, um, I had a way of structuring my own practicing. So even though I'm a self-taught jazz player, I, I could um, figure things out the way I wanted to do them. And, and something that, you know, learning jazz outside of school in those days, I, I'm probably one of the last people to to really learn in this old school way of just going to clubs and trying to hang so so i have to go back home and figure out what went wrong and <laughs> what i could do next time to not fail so badly um to try to to hang in with with the experienced musicians um nobody ever once told me what to play Nobody suggested to me that there were scales that I should know to use to play over chord changes. Nobody ever said to me, I should copy somebody else and transcribe a solo. These were never things I heard. Now, I had acquaintances who were my age who were studying jazz at other schools, and I knew they were doing that stuff. But that didn't sound like the stuff that I was observing mm -hmm. in my experience. You know, as a matter of fact, I, I observed the opposite, that the tradition of the music suggested that what was interesting was somebody who had something unique to offer. And, and so I knew about transcribing solos and the idea that, you know, you would take this influence uh, of copying other people and, you know, meld it into something of your own. I'd, I'd heard this philosophy, but I didn't believe it. I, it sounded like cheating. I, I, th I thought, you know, if, if I could just play what somebody else plays, that, then I don't have to figure out myself what to play that is mine, and that that would be cheating. So that that's I just kind of made up my mind that oh I'm not going to do that. 
um, so I didn't have to figure out how not to be like somebody else. I, I've always just been me. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing I had to figure out was how to be a clearer, more sense-making sense musician as me. You know, yeah. so, so, and maybe that was a longer, more involved process. But um, I, I, your, to answer your question, I didn't have to make the choice. I just, it never occurred to me to, to do anything else. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it sounds like, I mean, there, there's, I think everything has got its balance, you know, where, where there's, there's good stuff about something and there's equally bad stuff about in, you know, any situation. Um, and yeah, there, there's certainly something to be said for, uh, you know, having, having that, that guidance, the mentoring, uh, the, the, that, that the, the traditional educational system provides. Um, the, the minus of that is that sometimes we're, we're, we're limited. We're limited based on the concepts that the, that the teachers have, and you know that that uh, they often have a a one size fits all approach to to pedagogy. And you know, conversely, you know, the the just figuring figuring it out on your own. There's a, a wonderful freedom that comes with that because it is a that is a truly unique experience. And the problem is, is that sometimes you get detoured because you don't have somebody that can be there to, to help you to avoid the pitfalls. Um, I always just tell my students, uh, you know, I, I can't give you a shortcut. My job is not to give you a shortcut to, to attain mastery in whatever it is you're trying to do. My job is to help you to avoid the detours. Mm -hmm. It's going to take you, it's going to take you however long it takes you to get it. But, you know, I can certainly give you some, some uh, practical experience, you know, from practical experience that, this this path will probably take you longer to get there. So it's not it's not that it's a shortcut. It's just avoid the, you know. I'm like GPS. I want to give you the shortest route. So well, I think I think we all we all teach both from our own experience, and in some ways we teach as we were taught. You know, whether whether that was formal teachers or informal teachers, and and uh, you know my. The me the mentorship that you mentioned, I, I was such a lucky kid. I mean, I was so lucky because I just kept kind of shuffling from one person who would take me in and help me to the next one. And and, and I, I did this for, for a long time. I was able to play with older musicians. And although, you know, I didn't sign up for lessons with them, the 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 lessons I got from them were, were so important and, and so, so ever present spending so much time with them over so many years that, you know, now I'm saying something to a student and, and the student will leave and I'll say, well, where, where did I get that idea? And I'll say, oh, that's what Iris Sullivan used to say to me all the time. And that's, that's what, you know, so, so, and so I <laughs> just, the things coming out of my mouth were the things that, my mentors and my teachers used to say to me yeah and so this is what forms us as teachers i think you know well i, I think that uh it, across the board whether it's music or, or any other 
art form or, or any environment where you're trying to develop skill. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the formal learning process and there's that informal and the informal the, the just the hang like what we're doing right now it's it's being around people it's observing them it's it's talking to them and getting a, a broader sense of of their perspective not just on that particular skill but on life in general because that's what drives everything you know your your approach to life is going to going to be foundational to how you approach your music or whatever skill you're trying to develop and i think that that those lessons are the ones that make the greatest amount of impact uh because a lot of times our guard is down uh you know because when we're trying to learn sometimes we put our guard up and we're, we're kind of filtering things and and forcing ourselves to eat you know, to to analyze and, and critique what's what's being told to us as opposed to kind of absorbing naturally and somewhat through osmosis when you're when you're hanging around the, the people that uh you know that, that you respect and that and that you uh admire and, that you, and probably if you're hanging out with them you like them and so it can be this very natural and organic process of of uh the the sharing of information which i think is a is a big part of particularly uh older cultures uh you know that especially like with, with music of so much music being oral tradition like you were saying like the west african music being oral tradition you know that just requires being around people and being absorbed in that environment so that it becomes part of your your dna 100 percent. It, it's a communal art form absolutely yeah. you know so as as a uh, as a non-traditional student of jazz mm -hmm. say that since you know what is the tradition of jazz um what do you see as 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 an educator now as someone who, who didn't have to, who didn't go through that process uh, that that now you are a part of as being, mm -hmm. being an educator, what do you see as being the biggest holes in uh, our current state of, of jazz pedagogy? Oh, that's a five-hour answer you're asking for because that's that's my jam right there. I'll be I'll be brief. Yeah. Um, Thank you for asking that question. Um, you know, first of all, it is an oral tradition. And and um, if you're learning to play by theory or if you're learning to play by reading chord changes, you are learning with a visual tr tradition, which is how we teach classical music. You know, so so first first of all, the attempt to fit a square peg into a round hole is is what's happened trying to get traditional universities and conservatories to accept jazz as a curriculum has been a process generally of trying to make it look like classical curriculum so that it looks acceptable to non-jazz people. So, so most of the problems have come from that to the point where there's generations of jazz musicians who don't quite understand that making a solo by using theoretical concepts over chords that you either see on a page or see on a page in your mind is not the same process as playing what you hear. 
and and so many of our students don't even realize those are two different things. Um, of course, as as a working musician, you need both skills because somebody's going to shove a set of chord changes on in, on your music stand and push the record button, and you're going to have to sound decent. So so you you need to know how to read changes, but it's not the same art form. And so that that's the first place where it falls apart. The second place is 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 where we um, separate people by ability level. Here's the first band, here's the second band, here's the third band. You're in the top combo, you're in the second combo. That's totally bogus and, and destroys the idea of the music being a communal experience and, and it destroys the, the mentorship process. It, it, it robs the students of the ability to have that kind of experience. So... Um, too correct for, for, for these things that I see as glaring annoyances. Um, you know, I'm on a soapbox all the time. So, so, so what we're doing here at the University of Colorado is every group is composed of doctoral students, master students, upperclassmen, underclassmen. That's how you make a group. Our big bands are made that way. Our combos are made that way. Also, the teachers play in the ensembles. They don't stand in front of the ensembles and critique them. So we learned by playing with more experienced players. We didn't learn by people telling us how to play and how not, you know, certainly they told me how not to play. <laughs> I, heard, I heard that. I'm still hearing that. But, but, but uh, play with the students make everybody feel included all the time. The experienced players have to be playing with the inexperienced players and vice versa. Otherwise the whole thing breaks down. So it's all about the ear. It's all about rhythm. And, it, and it's all about the cross generational experience and the sharing. So that those are the, that's the five-hour answer into three minutes there. Ah, well, I, I would love to hear the five-hour answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you everything that's wrong, you know. <laughs> I'm a great critic. Yeah. Uh, um, you, you know, doing the, doing the things that are right is, is, a, is an hourly um, experiment. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and I think that, that that's really a crucial thing to think about whether you know it's a discussion of, of music or life in general that yeah we we all tend to be really great critics yeah um but it's being willing to try to develop uh, a solution and and not just i think it's it's the humility of knowing that you may not know a better way but you're sure yeah. as hell going to give it a shot yeah. and uh you know i i used to uh I used to tell my employees that, you know, it's like, look, I don't want you to, I, I know that I've got problems here, you know, in this, in this school that I'm running. Uh, I don't want you to come in and complain about what's going wrong unless you can also provide me with a potential solution to the problem. It doesn't mean that I have to accept it. It doesn't mean that it's the right one, but I, I want you to get out of this mindset of always trying to find what's wrong, but I want you to trying to identify how can you problem solve. 
I went to my fellow faculty members several years ago. I said, we, we absolutely have to stop making the students play these juries. This, this is not helping anybody. It's not fun. It's not fun for them. It's not fun for us. Turns, turns the whole semester into this public school teaching to the test experience. Everybody's not coming from the same place at the same time. And, and they asked, well, what would you do instead? Just like you're saying. I would say jam sessions. <laughs> so that's, that's what we're doing. No more juries, lots of jam sessions. That's awesome. I mean, it, it's because, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's like you train someone uh, and, and that's, that's my biggest beef with the educational system as a whole is you're training someone to approach life in a way that is completely different than the real world. Yeah. You're going to give somebody a skill, give them a, a, a skill and, and me, if you're going to have to measure it, then measure it in terms of real world results. You know, the juries, I mean, how many times other than like, if you're, a, a, if you're on the audition circuit, you know, and you're, mm -hmm. you're playing auditions, yeah. trying to do the symphony, um, you're never going to do that. No, you're never going to have to do that. You, you're going to have to play in a club. You're going to have to play with other musicians. You're going to have to, you know, do all these different things. And uh, even even skills outside of that, outside the playing skills. I know a, a lot of the educators that I've talked to on this show, uh, you know, they talk about how they are incorporating more modern day skills, things like learning how to, to manage social media, how to utilize, uh, you know, electronic recording equipment, you know, all the things that you're going to have to do as a, as a working professional, mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are things that you should be learning, not just, you know, the regurgitation of the same old repertoire or, you know, you know the, the old way of doing stuff. So I, I really commend you on, on, on just taking those steps forward. You know, I, I have a, you know, I'm a little pet uh, uh, presentation, and I actually gave this lecture at, at Gen at the Jazz Education Conference several years ago. That the way, basically, my my thesis is this: people learn to play jazz very well before they learn to play jazz in school. Not not to say we shouldn't be teaching jazz in school, but let's examine how people learn to j play jazz and see if we can make school more like that. So, so, so the name of the presentation is the traditional jam session as a model for jazz education. So what happens in a good jam session? What doesn't happen? How do people learn in this environment? What, what works about this? And not just about having jam sessions, although that's definitely a part of the thing, about the value of jam sessions themselves, but what are the what are the the values that come from that style of learning, and how can we instill that more in our classes and less lecture test lecture test? Yeah, yeah, that's very cool. That's very cool. I have to uh, dive into that uh, at some point in uh, and see what you have to say because I, I think that that's jamming whether it's uh learning to play jazz or the way we learn to, to speak a language you know that's that's how we do it it's it's the mentoring it's the the improvisation it's uh being willing to uh 
to put yourself out there, uh, to, to be around people that have a higher skill level than you and to learn from, from your mistakes. And I think, uh, you know, so many of us are, are so afraid to make mistakes. Uh, and, you know, that a lot of that is the, the, the guilt lays on the more experienced pe people who sometimes have a tendency to make the younger or less experienced player feel uh, insecure and inadequate instead yeah. of encouraging them to, you know, yeah. do something. My experience as a teenager, you know, trying to go find people who knew knew jazz, like I said, that they, they weren't in my the environment that was provided for me. Um, so, of course, my my first way I, I learned jazz was by arguing with bouncers, <laughs> <You know? laughs> trying to get them to let me in, or right. you know, could could could, could you? could you please go get one of the musicians and they could vouch for me and could please, you know, standing at the doorway to bars and, and things like this as a 16 year old kid. Um, but when I went to sit in with the, the, the experienced players, I wasn't good enough to be playing with them. They knew that. I knew that. They didn't say, get out of here kid and never come back. That's that's not what I got at all. I got the opposite. You know, oh, you're interested in learning this music? Okay, then. Well, you're with us now. We'll we'll help. I mean, that's that's the tradition right there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yes, it's the nurturing aspect, you know. Yeah. So I think that's great. Well, you know, I, I do want to to switch gears and I, I certainly talk about uh about this concept for hours. Um, but I do want to talk about uh, your experiences uh, with dealing with embouchure change, because uh, much like uh, much like learning jazz, I think uh, the the stigma around embouchure change and the necessity, uh, whether it be uh, to help to just make a, a player a little more efficient in their playing or to deal with some sort of uh, setback or, you know, some catastrophic injury. Uh, I think that not everybody, not every teacher is skilled enough in the ability to, to be able to diagnose and then to, to create a, uh, a structure to help someone get through those processes. So uh, yeah. what, what, what has your experience been and how, how has your personal experience affected your, your, uh, your use of these methodologies in your teaching? Oh, uh, you're asking these questions that, you know, are so, so I have, my answer is so involved, it involves so many experiences, you know. Um, first of all, you know, thanks for asking that. Um, I, I, I do now find myself in the position of being able to help people, which, um, you know, gives life a kind of a purpose, really. And, and, and um, I, I like that. I, I, I like that if somebody's struggling, there's somebody who, who can help, help them struggle less. Um, because some of my early experiences with, with trying to understand the trumpet and, and figure it out, uh, I, I didn't get direct answers. I, I got philosophical treatises you know, or, or, or theoretical responses. I didn't get somebody to say, I see what's going on there, change this, do this, and 
this will be fixed. You know, um, and and I think because there aren't a lot of people who are willing to go into the specifics of embouchure technique, um, people who do what I do now are sometimes viewed with skepticism by by the community of people who believe analysis is paralysis, um, which is which is a a big movement in brass pedagogy right now, and um, I, as a player, I'm a, I believe I can show an example of the opposite. Somebody who analyzed his way out of many problems, some of which were 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 physical accidents that happened to me, and some were just lack of understanding of, of how to be a better player. And so in, in my experience of having these accidents and injuries, uh, in some ways I was forced into this path. Uh, so, so as I said earlier, um, we learn from our, we, we teach the way we were taught and, and we teach from our own experience. And um, the first thing that happened was when I, when I was 16 years old, I, I got my first flugelhorn. It was a, Beautiful Benge flugelhorn. I wish I still had it, um, but I didn't realize that you you got to tighten that screw really tight on the tuning slide in the front of the flugelhorn. And I was goofing around and playing really hard, and and it snapped. It went bam, and I stuck these two teeth right through my upper lip, and I had to pull my lip off my teeth. And they took me to the emergency room, and I got three stitches right there, right, right where the the, um, the mouthpiece rim would sit. And so I, I have a a huge scar right there in this in the center of my my upper lip from the from the age of sixteen. Now when I when I came back playing, I didn't I didn't think much about it, and I I was really you know, I didn't know anything, so I I just kept going kept playing and and things weren't as easy as they were before i had been more natural with my tone production i had been more i'd gotten lucky i'd done things right without realizing what it was i was doing which can happen um and uh then nothing would work so i just kind of like on my own just yeah try this try that and just just kept playing and I, I got better. You know, I got to a certain level. I, I, I went to college and studied trumpet with Vince DiMartino at the University of Kentucky. And, and uh, he was a wonderful teacher and, and a great trumpeter and, and, and a person who inspired me to learn the trumpet, to be a, not just a jazz head, but get into trumpet and be a trumpet player. And hanging around Vince, that will happen to you. He's so energetic and, and so excited about it and so into it. And um, Vince always says that he didn't really want to get into specifics of stuff with me because I wasn't having that many problems. He, he was teaching me repertoire, um, the classical repertoire, teaching me sight transposition, teaching me how to play the C trumpet, the E flat trumpet, the piccolo trumpet. 
we were, you know, we were working on this stuff. And as a jazz player, we didn't really have jazz at our school at that time. And I was out doing what I did. And he could see that I, I had my own path. And he always says, he, 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 when he talks to people about having me as a student, he didn't want to show me anything because he didn't want to get in my way or he didn't want to influence me. And he certainly, some of my peers who, who were students there with him at the time, kind of ended up sounding like Vince, <laughs> you know? So, so, so there is that. And, and, but when I got out of school and I, and I was back in Chicago and I was just so deeply into, into the jazz scene and, and just playing and playing and playing, my chops went to crap after about a year. And my my career, quote unquote career, was doing that. Um, I was getting these opportunities to play with the, the you know the, the people I dreamed of playing with, and it was it was happening sooner than I dreamed it would, faster. Um, and, and my play, my trumpet playing was going the opposite direction. The tone was splitting had no range, had no endurance. When I was playing with Red Rodney, I asked him, I said, how come, you know, you can play so easy up and down and I have these other people, these great lead players and they can play, I can't play high notes and I can't seem to get through a two set gig. And he said, don't worry about that, man. You'll get your high notes when you're older. And, and I was mad at that answer because I thought that was a bullshit answer. I mean, it yeah. turned out it was true. <laughs> you know, he was right. But, but I mean, just that, that answer wasn't enough. Well, this started the, 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 the second period of trumpet lessons, which went on for a long time, where I sought out all the most famous brass teachers. And remember being in Chicago and being in the Midwest, I had access to the big names and I studied with all of them. And what I, what I heard mostly was you're not concentrating hard enough about the sound in your mind, or you have too much resistance in your equipment, or you're not breathing freely enough you need to increase your lung capacity. You need to, I, I, these are the things mm -hmm. I heard. I heard a lot of things that sounded like the, the musical, The Music Man. Remember when, when yeah. the professor has the think system? Think system. I heard about the think system and I spent a lot of money and a, and a lot of energy subscribing to the think system and nothing improved. I mean, maybe my tone improved. I, I don't know, you know. But but the problems I was having didn't get any better, and this was many years. Well, flash forward many years. I'd taken my my first full time teaching job. I was teaching at the Cincinnati Conservatory, and I was practicing whisper tones. Somebody told me practice whisper tones like a flute player, and this will get your your response will be the thing, you know? So um, I had my eyes closed. I was standing near 
a large six inch thick uh, wood soundproof door of my teaching studio. It was ajar. Somebody opened it into me and bashed my lip. Same, same thing. This time the teeth didn't go all the way through, but actually my lip kind of went down between my teeth and I kind of bit it. Uh-huh. And it was so swollen. Um, it looked like I had a ping pong ball in my lip. And luckily, there was no real tear to my muscle. But the doctor said, well, ice that lip. Take the swelling down. He says you should ice it 10 minutes every hour for a couple days until the swelling is gone. So okay. So I was watching television. I'll get my ice 10 minutes. Next hour, 10 minutes. Swelling went down. Well, the doctor didn't tell me don't put the ice directly on your lip, which I am telling you, podcast listener people, trumpet players, don't ice your lip. And and I would say don't ice your lip, period, ever. Because what happened to me was um, I destroyed the muscle tone in my lip and I shrunk the muscle and I turned it to mush, it was like one one step short of frostbite. And at that point, this was my sound. And that was all I could do. Um, I could not make a, make a tone on a trumpet. And, and so I, I became uh, severely depressed, um, uh, didn't know what to do about teaching the trumpet lessons I had to teach. I had to cancel all my gigs. Um, after several weeks of, of very bad depression, um, the, my wife found out about Dr. McGrail, Dr. Simon McGrail, who was in Toronto. And he was an ENT, a ear, nose, throat doctor, and a plastic surgeon and a French horn player who had a specialty practice in dealing with injuries to vocalists and injuries to brass players. Apparently the only person in the world who did such a thing. Now he, as a plastic surgeon, believed that he could do uh, surgeries for people who had torn their lip by playing with a weak embouchure, which they call Satchmo syndrome. Um, Repair it in a way that would heal without as much scarring as the injury itself and make it easier for brass players to continue their careers. Oddly, it's mostly French hornists having these injuries, although it does happen to trumpet players and even more rarely to low brass players. But, but it does it does happen. My case was different in that I didn't have a similar kind of injury, and I the injury I basically had was this shrinking of the lip and destroying of the muscle tissue by over icing. The accident itself wasn't that big a deal. And, and um, Dr. McGrail had designed physical therapy exercises for the lip where you basically do reps 
like with the weightlifting principle. Most muscles in your body are designed to adhere and work against a bone or joint. But the lip is a sphincter. It's an oval. And there are three of them in your body. One is here. One is in your glottis. It's the swallowing muscle. And the third is, of course, your, your sphincter. Um, they don't they don't attach. So there's no logical way to rehab a muscle like that. But Dr. McGrail ingeniously thought you would substitute the teeth for bone and do reps of your lifting exercises, pulling your lips against your teeth. And, and I would use various thicknesses of cotton gauze pads. These are exercises he designed for his recovering surgery patients. But it, it turned out that since <laughs> the damage to my muscle was so much greater than it was in people who had playing injuries, I had to do these injuries about these exercises about five times as long to recover as, as his other patients did. In, in the end, one, one of the side stories is um that that um dr mcgrail would often refer his patients to me for help in in learning his rehab exercises since i'd kind of become the guinea pig um and i and i'm still helping people with that um when people have injuries and and they need to recover with physical therapy um in my own playing as I began to get slightly more strength in my lip, I could start to make a little bit of a buzz and there would be a little sound and I could start practicing again. Now, over this long period of time, I did these exercises, which for me was about 18 months. By the way, this was 2001, 2002 when this happened. Uh, so 20 years ago. Um, the, the, um, all the things I'd heard about trumpet playing from all these great teachers led me not to be able to play the trumpet at all. Whereas when I started researching other things, I found I could get around and make things happen. So this, the process of, of learning how to play again with no strength in my lip was a kind of a clarifying process for me in weeding through all the information and all the advice I had gotten from these years of trumpet lessons and seeing what was not helping me and what was. In particular, I went to Clark Terry for help. And Clark helped me quite a bit by first talking about utilizing my corners or my buccinator muscles actively in playing and he taught me how to start doing this but he also said something to me that other people had said which is read reinhardt's book and and donald reinhardt of course was was a a brass teacher a trombonist brass teacher who analyzed hundreds of players and found out that there are mechanics involved in manipulating a brass instrument, and that depending on your facial structure and your teeth, 
there are certain movements that make things happen for you. The, the, the movements make things happen for everybody, but you tailor your, your abilities, your movements to your physical setup. And so I studied Reinhardt diligently, and, and I studied with some of his students, um, particularly with Wes Orr, who's a lead trumpet player in Columbus, Ohio. And, and, teachers. Oh, okay. Wes got me on the right track, and eventually I got to Dave Sheets, who, who was a, a great lead player who played in Atlantic City for years, and was maybe the person who studied with Reinhardt over the most number of years. And understanding how things work opened a couple doors for me. The, the first thing is I changed my technical approach to playing. So the happy ending to my sad tale is uh, I never regained the full strength in my lip. I just I just gained enough to make a buzz. And my lip is not the same shape it was before the icing. It's smaller. Um, the, the, the upside is I completely changed the way I think about having the trumpet work and the idea of understanding the mechanics of the instrument became very important to me. And before the accident, I could, you know, really play up to about a high E flat solidly above high C. I could never play lead. Now I warm up to triple C every morning. First thing I do in my warm up. And uh, I, since the accident, I've been a very busy lead trumpet player, which I kind of always wanted to do, but never had the understanding of the instrument to be able to do. The other thing that happened was Dr. McGrail started sending these patients to me, and I started understanding why so many people were being hurt or injured because they weren't getting instruction on embouchure. They were just getting instruction to say, don't think about embouchure. And, and they, they had muscle failure. Um, so... I became also interested in helping those people relearn how to play after their injuries to prevent further injuries. Well, the, the more I got into this stuff, not only did it benefit my own playing, but I started myself like Reinhardt had to study people and make observations and see what I could see. And so this, the last 20 years has, I've had this side interest outside of, being a musician and, and being a music teacher, uh, I, I become interested in understanding the mechanics of embouchure and being able to help people who, who are having the kind of difficulties understanding the trumpet that I did by giving them specific technical, physical advice on the physical aspects of their, their playing, breathing, embouchure, et cetera, um, equipment. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I've entered this other area, but like I, like I said, oftentimes people are reluctant to call somebody like me because I'm saying in many ways, the opposite things of, of what 
the, these other teachers, we, we call them end result teachers. In other words, the end result is the only thing that's important. Knowing how you get it should be relegated to the unconscious mind. That, that seems to be the predominant school of thought in brass teaching today. And so somebody like me who says, no, know exactly how you do everything. How does that Lipsler work? What, what exactly are you doing? How can you control it? Um, I, I sound like a nut. And, and they treated Reinhardt like a nut during his, during his lifetime as well. Um, I, ha I have a, a friend who's, who's a, a, he's a good friend. We love each other. He's a classical trumpet teacher at a major university, successful performer. He saw the Reinhardt book on my desk. He picked it up. He said, this is the book I show my students to say, look how complicated brass playing can be made to seem when it's really just simple. And I said to him, that's the book that saved my career. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we, all, we all need different things at different times. So that, that's a, that was the short version of the five-hour answer I could have given you. I tried, mm -hmm. to, I tried to give you the shortest. Well, you know. it, it, apparently we, we're going to need to have about 10 more episodes. To get <laughs> this, yeah. this is really fascinating. And I think that uh, it, because there, there, there's a yin-yang. So like at the bottom, like there by on my, uh, my desk, right by my book is my little yin-yang cup. And I keep it there because it's a moment, it's, it's a, it represents the fundamental concept uh, that, that I kind of live my life by, which is the, the yin-yang theory, which a lot of people in the West don't understand. They think it's about, you know, like these divergent points. It, it's the, the mm -hmm. idea that, that everything uh, works together. They're not in opposition. They're opposite. They are complementary opposites, and they're matters of perspective. So, the if you think about the brain, the way the brain works, you have your conscious mind, you have your your unconscious or subconscious mind, depending on uh, how you want to phrase that. But yes, I agree with the concept that yeah, you have to let your subconscious go. You have, you have to come from there because that's where your habits exist. But how do you get habits? Habits exactly. through conscious repetition. Exactly. So if, if, you, if you already have the mechanics, if everything is right, if you, if you didn't have any problems, then yes, it would just simply be about getting the sound in your head and letting it come out. But if you have something that's in the mechanism that is off just slightly, because of the, the nature of a holistic system, something is going to change. If you don't understand how that change affects the rest of the system, then mm -hmm. you never be able to get the results that you really want because your, your concept and your facility are at odds at that point. So it's that being able to understand what is the process, how does the process work, let me make sure I've got everything in place, and then I can just get out of the way and let that come out but it's, exactly it's that that circle you know people don't it's the work that you got to put into it. and sometimes people just don't don't want to do the work man yeah yeah and um you know I, to go back to you know i was telling you the story of my life but but 
thanks for listening to all that. You know, if if anybody cares, um, it, it, uh, strings have always kind of come easily. I, I mean, I can I can go for weeks and not touch a bass, and somebody calls and says, "Hey, we need a bass player tonight," and I go play the gig, and I I'm fine. I, I have enough chops and 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 um, uh, endurance, and and it's, it's okay, you know. Uh, but but the trumpet, obviously, for me. My process has been, I've always been a very precocious musician, but I, my technique was not adequate to play what I was hearing. My fingers would do it, but my face and my breathing wouldn't do those things. And that was the frustration for me. That's why I sought so many teachers for so long. Now I have more technique than some people think I need. My technique is to the point where now I can play for you what I'm hearing and maybe you, maybe you don't have the patience to hear it. But uh, there are these people who are, are trumpet jocks. We, we, we know people like that um, where they're just like to play the trumpet and, and the musicianship isn't at the level of the, of the instrumental ability. But I, I don't believe I'm one of those people, but I, I do believe that the, the answer for me was to not quit <laughs> and, and, and maybe not take no for an answer, even when life was, you know, giving me lemons. Yeah. You know, I, I think you, there's a way um, to figure out how to do this, but the, the, the best thing we have is knowledge, you know, and, and to say you don't need to know anything about that. to me feels irresponsible yeah yeah after after what i've been through yeah and and that's the thing is that you know um if you've never had problems then you don't need to know it you know yeah. if, you're, if you're getting the results that you want, until something goes wrong until something exactly until something and, goes and, wrong. and then you don't know what it was you were doing in the first place exactly exactly and yeah like for me um you know, I, I I had I talked to you about about it. You know, kind of kind of pre uh, pre interview. Uh, but you know, I, I had an embouchure change that I was forced to go through mm -hmm. by a professor. Uh, and uh, you know, if being someone who has studied Reinhardt, I mean, you could look at me pretty much right away and, and be able to tell that I'm you know I'm a type four player, mm -hmm. okay? and, and because of the structure of my jaw. So you know. Upstream, low set, you know, textbook. Um, what was the first thing they did? Yeah, move me up. Because it didn't look right to them based on what they thought they knew. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I wasn't yep. getting sound. I wasn't getting the best sound. I didn't have the best. Uh, I, I had range, but I didn't have a lot of accuracy or control over that. But those mm -hmm. are now that I know could have been addressed without doing any of the stuff that 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 was done at which uh my experience uh, my i i studied with wes i was i was going to ohio state university okay. i studied years later uh for a brief period of time uh but we never really got into the reinhardt stuff it wasn't until i met doug elliott and okay doug worked with me a little bit and mm -hmm. he was the one that kind of put things together for me and he said here's your problem because I, had, I, I knew that I, I, I was an upstream player. I knew all that sort of stuff. I was trying to put it back in. He said, the problem is 
that because of the the problems that you got from the embouchure change and how hard you worked at that, your mind is fighting against itself because you know what you want to do, but you're reverting back to that habit that that they had instilled with you. Said, you know, because I I when I would do the things consciously that he would say, no problem. But I start to play music and I would immediately switch back to that old ingrained pattern. Right. And it's that's where we get into trouble when we just let the subconscious go. That's great. But if the subconscious has been programmed wrong, then, then you know, you're, you're in big trouble. So that's why I really love that, that analytical approach, because, uh, you know, yes, you can get paralysis by analysis, but that's over analysis. It's not analysis. It's over analysis. Right. So uh, the, the more we can understand something and how it works and why it works, then the better chance you have of, be, of gaining consistency in whatever it is you're trying to do. Yeah. So, man, I could talk on this subject for <laughs> hours, man. <laughs> yeah, but that's so it's so great that you know Wes, though. That's that's wonderful. He's, he's yeah, one of my favorite guys. Oh man, we, yeah. we played together in the in the Columbus Jazz Orchestra for six years. Mm-hmm. He's a good friend. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I left Columbus in uh, the early '80s and was back for. Uh, a short stint from like mid uh, like 87 through about 92 93 okay so, yeah. so I, I left chicago in 97 and and lived in cincinnati from 97 to 2004 and those were the years where i was driving back to forth to columbus 100 times a year yeah to play in the band yeah so that was a good <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Great yeah, experience. One yeah. of my favorite trombone players in that band too, Vaughn Weister. Vaughn, oh yeah. Vaughn. Oh yeah. yeah. Man. Sure. What a guy. What a guy. All right. Well, I mean, we could go on these subjects forever, but uh, I know that, that your time is limited and, and I've got to get through three uh, very important segments here uh, for our listening audience. Okay. Audience, whatever you want to call them. Okay. Uh, so this first segment is uh, brought to us by my good friend, Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. It's called Sound Off. And Sound Off is about your approach to sound. And I think it's, it's a, gr- a great uh, tie-in we're talking about with embouchure as well and uh, with, with uh, jazz concepts. Uh, so how do you approach not just the production of sound, but the, the ways that, that you view sound as a, a vehicle for, for the music that, that you're playing and, and the advice that you give to people uh, yeah. about Um, Despite all of my attempts to improve my sound, change it, morph it, uh, imagine it, as these teachers would have had me to doing, uh, imagine somebody else's sound, (laughs) you know, spent a lot of years chasing that. Um, I can listen to the first record I made, which was 1988, and the last record I made, you know, something I recorded last week. And if I really am up trying to be objective, pretty much the tone is pretty much the same. And and I've changed depths of cups. I've changed the the, the bores. I've, I've changed the back bores. I've changed from large bore trumpets to small bore trumpets, medium big bells, little bells. I sound like me. Um, 
I sound like me with a little bit of difference on a little bit different shaped equipment, but only a little bit. So I sound like me because I am me, partly because of what's in my unconscious mind, but also because of my physical structure, because of the size of my oral cavity, the size of my throat, the size of my tongue, what my teeth do. My job is to get the best, purest, cleanest sound possible without trying to sound like somebody else and without fighting with my physical system and my equipment. In other words, this is more life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Look, when I make a a sine wave, long tone sound on this trumpet, and I'm playing as, as efficiently as I can, it's going to sound like this. Let me work with that and make it the most beautiful musical sound I can make. I, I'm never going to be Bud Herseth. You know, I, I don't care what equipment I play and how many hours I spend imagining I sound like Bud Herseth. I'm still going to basically sound the way I sounded on that recording in 1988. So it, it took me a long time to realize that. So my approach is take the sound that God gave you and work on it and hone it and learn to control it and learn to manipulate it and shape it and twist it and do whatever you need to do with it. But you don't just go pick a sound off a tree. You know, I wish I sounded like Freddie Hubbard. I wish I sounded like Lee Morgan. It it doesn't work like that. And, And if you're chasing that, it could be a long chase with with a disappointing finish. Okay. Yeah. Learn to love your sound. Well, make your sound lovable, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but don't but don't make it work on it. But don't do try don't try to do something that's physically impossible for you to do. Yeah. Do what's easy to do and what's low maintenance and what's repeatable and make it beautiful. Wow. I mean, Maurice Andre does not sound like Dizzy Gillespie, and we're grateful for that. We don't want them to sound the same. Exactly. You know. Wow. <laughs> oh, awesome. Okay, I love yeah. that. All right. Uh, our next segment is uh, brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces. This is called mm-hmm. Geared Up Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21, get 10% off your order. So Geared Up is the obligatory discussion on all things gear. But ah. not we, we don't want to get in that rabbit hole of, uh, you know, specifically like, what, what, what's the best mouthpiece to play a double high C on? Um, but just the, the, the concept that you have of the relationship with between gear and the player with mm-hmm. That being the you know, the embouchure being the interface, mm-hmm. uh, you know how how do these things work together, and and what are the things that people need to think about when they're considering the type of gear that they use? I I think the important questions are not necessarily about tone color because I th- I think you can you can change your tone color to a degree by dealing with depth and shape of cup. I I think the important questions are impedance and resistance. And and you want 
uh, as my friend Fariz Wedded, Fariz Wedded said, um, uh, some people are buzzers and some people are blowers. <laughs> and maybe that's an oversimplification, but um, some people really like to feel like they're putting a lot of air into the instrument. That's how they want to feel when they're playing. Other people don't want to feel like that at all. And I, and I might be the farthest from that, you know? So based on the way you like to deliver your air, do, do you want a closed oral cavity? Do you want an open oral cavity? Is your embouchure, are you playing with an embouchure that's set closed? Are you playing with an embouchure that's set open? Um, finding the balance to where you're feeling the resistance and impedance that makes you comfortable with the way you like to play, moving with flexibility, changes of dynamics, control of attacks in different registers. I think that's the important search. But if we're on a safari for mouthpieces and trumpets, I think being in touch with how you like to feel when you do what you do easily is where the equipment becomes more important. If you're looking for equipment to give you that magic sound or that magic extra range, again, that might be a, a very futile kind of pursuit. I, I know how I like to feel. And, and I, the, the more I practice in, in my own search, um, the less air I want to put in the trumpet and the more resistance I want in my equipment. So, you know, every few years or so, there's like, eh, can I go a notch smaller in this way, narrower? Can, it's like it's the, things have been getting tighter. That's been my, my process. I know, I know other people, things have been getting more open. Um, but, but, but the resistance of the equipment is, I think, more important than choosing equipment for sound. It's, it's the feel. If somebody, you know, I, I hear this thing a lot of times. Uh, the audience doesn't care what you feel like. They only care what they hear. And then I go, yeah, but can I also say, I care what I feel like. <laughs> so if I'm feeling really good, it's a completely different music ex making experience than if I'm up there huffing and puffing and struggling. And that's a completely different way of feeling. And I don't want to feel like that. Yeah. So, so I'm looking for the equipment that makes the feeling of playing easier. Always looking for the easier feeling. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Why? Why fight? Yeah. And you could go to an extreme with that, and I, I might be one of the the crazy people who did. Yeah. Well. You know. So, but but you know, I'm trying to do what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to do what you're trying to do. So. Yeah. That, exactly. that that knowing that is helpful in, in selecting equipment also what is yeah. what is your gig yeah. and, and what makes your gig easier well and you know i think that the word uh resistance has gotten a bad rap in, yeah. in the trumpet world you know yeah. um just like the word stress has gotten a bad rap in the business world mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, you, you, I just recently did a presentation on it. You can't, you cannot survive without stress. People think, you know, well, stress is the worst thing in the world. No, no, you need stress. You have to have stress. If you, you know, that's how we get stuff done. The problem is what kind of stress, how much, where does it occur in a cycle? Yeah. You know, so, so for a trumpet, it's the same thing as resistance is necessary. You know, if there was no resistance, it, it's really not going to work. But it's where do you want it to be? You and, know, and how much do you need that feedback? And and some of us who like a lot of resistance want it in different parts of the equipment, because we're, we're the feeling that makes us comfortable is is different from person to person. Yeah, yeah, I've had uh, heard a lot of people talk about either wanting to, some people want to feel like they're blowing into the note or like, you know, so it's further down the horn. So they've got something to blow into as opposed to someone who feel like they have something to blow against. Mm -hmm. And, and exactly. it's that personal feeling. And I think when you understand that concept, then it's easier for you to dial in your equipment because you, you know what, again, that analysis part, when you understand how that works and why that works, then you can make logical decisions about how to create the situation that's going to give you what you need yeah so all right very cool man you know we can have all these deep conversations and and i, I i'd see that would be that would be a lot of trouble if i was in colorado so. <laughs> we'd have some fun though yeah all right final segment this is uh brought to us by robinson's remedies rapid relief for your sore and tired chops this is the robinson's remedy rapid fire rounds a series of questions that go all over the place and all kinds of topics here. So uh, it, it gets in deep into the mind of uh, Brad Good, which may be a scary place. <laughs> all right, so here we go. Brad, are you ready? Here's your first question. Yeah. All right, who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player? Von Freeman. All right, what's your favorite book? Oh, what's my favorite book? Besides the pivot system. Um. I loved Ulysses. I read it when I was a senior in high school, James Joyce. Okay. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? The worst? Gosh. I don't know. <laughs> I guess Plan 9 from Outer Space is a classic. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the classic answer. It's yeah, pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad. Uh, oh, he did one. He did one called Ed Wood did one called Glenn or Glenda. That's oh, yeah, that's yeah. worse. I I have seen that one as well. That is worse. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? Um, I think a teacher of, of some sort. Okay. Yeah, that by the way is the family business. But both my parents were were educators. Cool. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Red Bull. Uh, <laughs> busy man. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can have a dinner party, and at this dinner party, you can invite any three people in the world, any three living people. Who would you want to have there? Living people at a dinner party. Oh my gosh, these are these are really hard questions. Um. Man, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that. Um, living people at a dinner party. 
I'm stumped, man. I, I don't know who they would be. All right. Well, we'll go to part two of the question. Okay. Any three people from history? Any three people in the world? Ooh, people from history. Louis Armstrong, uh, Charlie Parker, and Igor Stravinsky. Mm, okay. Good conversation there. For sure. All right. Lacquer plated or raw? Raw or plated, Shilke proved there's no difference in the sound, whereas whereas lacquer changes the sound dramatically. Okay. What is your favorite quote? Charlie Parker said to one of my friends and mentors, Joe Daly, when when Joe Daly asked him, what is the secret of your playing? Charlie Parker said, come on, man. You know, if you don't play totally by ear, you're wrong. You know that, don't you? Well, there's the secret right there. Secret to jazz. Um, okay, what is your greatest fear? Um... My greatest fear is that I will not be able to help a student achieve what they're they're trying to achieve. Okay. That I that I won't won't be helpful to them. All right. Uh, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Um. superpower um whew. um i think i'd like to be able to play the things i can play equally in all 12 keys Ooh. <laughs> I know some people with that superpower, but but I'm not one of them. Let's not get crazy. <laughs> I thought it was going to be turning water into Red Bull. <laughs> All right. What aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? Um, breathing. Uh, what aspect do you feel is the most underrated? Um, articulation. All right. You can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Um, sp spend less time with repetition and more time with problem solving. Okay. And while you're back there, you're going to give your younger self one piece of advice about life. When you're in an amazing circumstance, make sure to stop and take it in and appreciate where you are right then. Uh, that's a good one. All right, final question for Mr. Bradley Good. What do you want your legacy to be? Ooh. Um, 
two, two things. One is selfish and, and one might be less selfish. The, the selfish one is I would like um, to leave a, a, a record of unique music. And, you know, that I've left. Um, the, the, the unselfish, the less selfish one is I, I want to help as, as many um, musicians have more success and more love of music as I can. Well, I would say based on, uh, based on your current track, you're, you're well on your way to both of those. So thank you. Just, uh, just one step at a time, keep going, man. And, uh, I really, and, and completely serious that I could talk about those topics of pedagogy and embouchure for hours on end. And we may have to do that at some point. It's just sit down. Okay. I'll, yeah, sure. Anytime. I'll, I'll bring the Red Bull and, uh, <laughs> and uh, we can share some Wes Orr stories. So, yeah. uh, but uh, yeah, seriously, man, uh, this, this has been really great. Uh, some fantastic insights and, and uh, I'm sure that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in touch more about some of these things as time progresses. Okay, thank you, Will. It's been a pleasure being with you, and I've really enjoyed this, and I hope uh, so some trumpet players uh, get, get some things out of it. I'm certain that they would. So thank you very much for joining us for this episode of The Hang. If you got any questions or comments, you can always drop them to me. Uh, and like and subscribe and share and all that good stuff. And uh, we'll catch you on the next one. As always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded